Ahoy hoy, it's time for your bi-weekly auditory flogging, you naughty listener, you. You've just tuned into Albion, a fortnightly history podcast hosted by a couple of idiots abroad. Or rather, an idiot and abroad. Clutching my cod piece, then clutching my cod, it's me, Elliot Flood. Next to me is my temporary fixed-term part-time junior <laughs> co-host intern, Casey Doodoo Butt Piercy. So am I am I just keeping the same middle name for now on? Yes. <laughs> Great. We'll change it once you get the job. If <laughs> you get the job. Hey, where's my contract? This podcast talks about the absurd history of the British Isles that we've been discovering since we left our home planet and moved to Mama to country. Elle, what do you have in store for us today? Where there's plenty of fish in the sea, it means there's a shark in the waters. Let's go on a magical journey. Tonight, we'll be broaching a favorite topic of ours, the British eccentric. I've managed to dig up a nice weirdo for us to look at. I bet he's a white man. <laughs> <laughs> the boat's a sinking. Women and children first. Let's get the show started with our fucked up feminist facts. <laughs> All right, knock, knock. Who's there? What? Water. What? Who? You already saw the answer. <laughs> You're supposed to say what, who. And what, I'm supposed who? to say Waterloo Bridge. Uh, what, who? Sorry, sure. I did see that. <laughs> All right, Waterloo Bridge, a bridge leading from the North Bank over the River Thames to the South Bank. The river demonstrated the country's success in commerce, reinforced its status as a naval power, and highlighted its architectural marvels. A Victorian travel writer claimed that Waterloo Bridge alone was worth a trip from Rome, being, quote, <laughs> the finest bridge in Europe. Ooh, that's a long trip just for a bridge. As we know, however, the river was filled with poo-poo. Oh, yes. And meandered along with the viscous brown. <laughs> The water was a dumping ground for the following. The drainings from dunghills and lace stalls, the refuse of hospitals, slaughterhouses, soapworks, drug mills, gas works, the minerals and poisons and lead used in mechanics and manufacture. It was also enriched with the purifying carcasses of dogs, cats, rats, <laughs> and men, and mixed with the scourings of all the wash tubs and kennels across the city. Oh, man, that must have just tasted so fresh. You so, pour it into a glass and just... Yeah, el elixir of life. Mm. Well, the river was known as a male space due to the physical labor taking place within its currents and along its banks. So what better location then to emphasize a woman's fatal wandering from her allotted domestic sphere? Although female suicides were more common in London's canals and parks, the Thames setting, however, brought the narrative of a Victorian women's inescapable downward mobility when they ventured from their respectable homes into the city. Mm. If it was a lure of a little hottie, lure of a little bit of richness, all these women coming from respectable homes, finding themselves in rags and then throwing themselves off the Waterloo Bridge. Yikes. And then not sinking because it's just thick with shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a, back to the density question of physics yeah. is if the river is filled with poo poo, can you float on it? How many turds till you can walk on water? Uh, I like Mythbusters to answer that question, please. <laughs> well, the Waterloo Bridge had another name. The tall Victoria Bridge was also known as the Bridge of Size because so many people chose to commit suicide by using its 54 foot drop. 
And they called it the Bridge of Sighs for that? Yeah. Hmm. Is that like short for suicides? Oh, no, no. Like size, like e e exhalation, like, oh, yeah, size of despair. Size of yeah. despair. Not like okay. S-I-Z-E, like S-I-G-H. Yeah. First, first, I thought like size is in like, eh, it's, a, it's, not, it's not a bad they're just, size. They're already abbreaving in Victorian times. Yeah. <laughs> and then they're like, nah, it's just the sides. This is where all the sides go down. Yeah, totes. And totes go down to the sizes. <laughs> Well, in fact, young women, especially unmarried mothers or prostitutes, slightly slight distinction there. Um, honestly, they're probably the same women. <laughs> anyway, they chose suicide as the only way to escape shame and destitution. So, yes, party! Yay! Women's suicidal leaves were captured in illustrated newspapers, sold in one-shilling books, presented in theaters, displayed at the Royal Academy of Art, and narrated in literature. So everybody was like glorifying the forlorn woman just bobbing along like an apple in the surface <laughs> of the water. <laughs> um, in 1844, the poet Thomas Hood wrote a popular poem sympathizing the plight of the river, once again bobbing with human apples, and the poem was aptly named The Bridge of Sighs. Real clever, that one. He really nailed it, yeah. nailed it down. Show for suicides. That's yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> That's proven scientific fact. Look it up on Wikipedia after we log in and make amendments real fast. <laughs> SoundCloud album coming soon. <laughs> Bridge of sides, yo. Uh, Hood's poem was written just two weeks after the heavily publicized suicide attempt of a mistress, Mary Furley. In actuality, Hood's poem had very little to do with Miss Furley's real story, and the poet just morphed morphed her from a hard-living mother of two into a seduced, abandoned, and love-mad woman who <laughs> redeemed herself through a metaphorical baptism of being purified by the river waters and death. God, that's insane. So here's a stanza from said poem. Make no deep scrutiny into her mutiny, past all dishonor, Death has left on her only the beautiful. So they're basically saying like, at least she was hot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> at least she looked good. Yeah. Jumping Be in that Beautiful dead river. corpse. I'm imagining yeah. like that painting of Ophelia who's just like floating in the water with her like porcelain skin just skimming above the surface of the oh, flowers. Oh yeah, totally. Like that's, that's really the time period we're talking about anyway. <laughs> yeah. Well, in fact, Merely Furley's suicide attempt was depressingly cliche and was not poetic at all. Furley, age 36, and her two sons had been living in a workhouse. Mmm, God. Good old workhouses. Do you want to explain what a workhouse is in a few words? I think it is basically you can't afford to rent a place, so you just live in this huge tenement with a shitload of other people who can't afford to rent places yes and it's also the place you work yes because you're in debt because you're in debt yeah it's basically like a debtor's prison right? it's a debtor's prison okay, for yeah. sure yeah yeah you're not allowed like to freely move to and from they're basically they're saying like oh you're totally out of money you can stay live under our roof as long as you work in our laundry or yeah. whatever and we'll like pay <laughs> well yeah. we won't pay you but we'll give you a little bit of things to eat yeah, sounds like a good deal i don't see why they <laughs> yeah. want to let's bring it back you know well, Mary Furley, I think, would disagree because they had been living in a workhouse. The eldest child had become ill, and she's just like, uh, -uh I'm out. We got to get out of here. So after leaving the workhouse, she made shirts, but this was labor intensive. She'd be working all day long, super hard, and could only make three shirts a day. 
So she decided instead to try her hand at making caps. Mm. And on her way to buy muslin at the clothing shop, the haberdashery, which is my favorite British word, <laughs> um, she either lost her whole purse or I'm guessing she's pickpocketed. Yeah. And that is her money, dude. She's got no money to buy materials, so she couldn't get any work at all. This is oh, like, no. I'm sure that she probably wasn't paying rent because she was fresh out of a workhouse, but this was like definitely her food money yes. and her living money, and it is gone. Oh, dire, dire yeah. times. And she gets fucking desperate. So her aversion to reentering the workhouse was so strong that she left one child with the neighbor and then took the younger two-year-old with her, put the two-year-old in her arms, and jumped off a bridge. Oh, God, that's really sad. A boatman witnessed the incident and pulled her out. She was alive, but the toddler was dead. Furley was tried and convicted of murder and was sentenced to death. Later, the sentence was commuted to seven years transportation and I'm not mispronouncing that. I mean to say transportation, hmm. which I'm 90% certain just means that she was shipped off to fucking Australia. Yeah. That would be my first guess. <laughs> yeah. Like seven years means like you're sent in exile for seven years and then you can come back. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that was just the old version of Megabus from London to the north. <laughs> Megabus is my debtor's prison. Yeah. It basically takes <laughs> Megabus fucking seven sucks. fucking years to get to London <laughs> on a Megabus. <laughs> Okay, so this is a little bit off topic, but it was just so good I didn't want to throw it out. Okay. So for a nice little digression, um, the court records for Mary Furley's trial are hilarious. Oh, my God. Are you ready for this? <laughs> I, I don't know. Yes. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, here's a witness from the workhouse infirmary testifying to the health of the two-year-old. She says, I used to work for the nurse in the infirmary at Bethnal Green Workhouse. The child was supplied with everything there that it could want, as far as the house allowed. The child seemed in general good health. I never heard the prisoner complain. She was not turned out. She left of her own accord. And then the court asks, you say the child was supplied with all it wanted, as far as the house allowed? <laughs> <laughs> to which the witness responds, Yes, if it wanted anything in particular, the doctor ordered it, it would have it. It had bread and butter allowed in the morning and the same in the evening. <laughs> the same as all the children had and milk and water. On meat days, which there are three days in a week, it, oh ha it had its regular meat as well as the other children. And on other days, it had bread and milk or bread and rice. It had as much of these things as it could eat, and it was a stout child. I had one <laughs> child in the workhouse, which lived to be 11 months old. It was a thriving child. It died of measles. <laughs> oh, my God. This is the glowing review of the workhouse. Yeah, this is her fucking testimony. Jesus. And you know the people in the jury are like, wow, yeah. Yeah. Like, that's three meat days. Yeah. Damn. Bread and milk and bread and rice and water. That's all my child would want to eat. <laughs> Everything that the house allowed. That's pretty good. But I just love that ending like it died of, or it died of measles. Like she basically just went up for two paragraphs saying about the amazing condition. <laughs> yeah. She's like, oh, by the way, my, my kid's fucking dead. We had one that made it all the way to 11 months. <laughs> yeah. And then it died of measles. <laughs> All right. So uh, thank you for allowing me that digression. I'm glad it was worth that. That was a good one. Um, back to our main topic about the Bridge of Sighs and all the unfortunate womanly souls who took the plunge. Letting their honor be cleansed by the pure, crystal pure River Thames. <laughs> mm -hmm. So are you ready for our... Perfect up feminist act. Oh, is it that time already? It's that time. Let's get there. 
All right, hit me with that C note. I want my feminist fact, feminist fact, feminist fact. I want Casey's my feminist fact, feminist feminist fact. Casey's feminist fact. fact. And it's fucked up. Our fucked up feminist fact. Women's dead, lifeless bodies who are dragged from the riverbed would have resuscitation attempted on them for hours. Oh. They know that there's shit in that water, right? <laughs> I mean, that's not what I'm worried about. I'm worried about like a fucking dead body. Yeah, I guess it's a dead body. I don't know what grosses me out for. Uh, for me, it was the dead body. <laughs> they're both really like. Nice I'm like, I mean, they're not even doing CPR because they're fucking idiots. Yeah. But if they were, like, imagine you just pull like a blue engorged body from the river and then you just try to do CPR on it. Yeah. With your mouth, like mouth to mouth. Fucking god. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, totally. I'm just picturing someone who's been dead for like three days and then people pulling him out of the river and being like, don't you die on me. <laughs> Come back. <laughs> like, the, don't lose the will yeah, to live. I can save him. I can save him. <laughs> All <laughs> He's right, not that well, far gone. Sorry. Yeah. Prepare to be treated because oh, yeah. this is a fucked up feminist fact for a reason. <laughs> So resuscitation for people that drowned was a standard practice. Excuse me. I'm going to backtrack that and say resuscitation for dead people who had drowned was standard practice in the Victorian era. So in 1788, Surgeon Charles Kite was marketing a pocket case of instruments for the recovery of the apparently dead. (laughs) (laughs) This was 20 pieces of pipes and attachments to push air to the lungs, push medicines, pump medicines into the stomach and intestines, and then (laughs) push tobacco smoke to the rectum. (laughs) God, I love Victorians. They're so insane. So Dr. Kite noted that reanimation was not dependent upon a strong constitution and one could never predict who would ever recover from drowning. It's true. So Dr. Kite stressed that even the quote, livid black and cadaverous countenance or quote, the rigid and inflexible state of the body, jaws or extremities end quote, we're not proof of absolute death. Oh, my God. This guy's been doing too much laudanum. <laughs> so, I mean, that's that's your fella. Like, people are being fished on the river with rigor mortis, and they're still, like, putting tobacco smoke up their ass. <laughs> like or that. they're, like, black, livid, like, basically degloving in the Ugh. surface of the water, and then they're still going to fucking try stuff. So, in 1795, the Royal College of Physicians prescribed the standard at least three hours diligent perseverance in the treatment recommended. That means for three hours, they're using that fucking 20 piece of pipes and machinery to. How many cigarettes is that to blow up somebody's ass? <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you, that's a car in a palm malls. Mind my words. <laughs> Easy. <laughs> So, and then it goes even further because the Royal Humane Society had been like, they're like, we can save people that have drowned. We just have to set up these stations all across these bodies of water. And that way, anytime somebody falls in or like tries to commit suicide, we'll just pull them out. So they're training attendants on the principles of expiration, uh, expiration meaning death and inspiration meaning being able to breathe. 
and they were instructing the public never to assume the drowned body was irrevocably dead. Mm, you never knew who was going to come back to life at any point in time. <laughs> uh, water rescue training was also offered to children because <laughs> there was a was. Sunday school union book entitled Stories of the Royal Humane Society, which included instructed diagrams of <laughs> inducing respiration. Oh, my God. <laughs> Of course, Victorians figure out another way to get kids to fucking smoke. <laughs> yeah, I, I wasn't thinking that they were smoking the cigarettes. I'm just thinking that, like, they're just so traumatized. There's just no mm -hmm. mental health at all in these days. Oh, God, no. Like, imagine the responsibility of, like, pulling a dead body out of the river and then trying to resuscitate it, coming, you know, falling on the head of an 11-year-old who's yeah. fresh out of scouts. <laughs> so... Uh, Kite, <laughs> fucking wacky ass surgeon Kite, he also recounted several cases from medical history in which drowning victims were reanimated hours after being underwater, including a man who continued underwater seven weeks, notwithstanding which he not only recovered, but enjoyed a good state of health for the great many years after. <laughs> <laughs> oh my so, God. Did he save Jesus? Yeah. <laughs> You could just bullshit people back then and they'd be like, Fuck well, yeah, you yeah, could. That's, yeah. A, that's cool, man. That's crazy. Or you like rescue a schizophrenic from the water and like, oh man, did you just fall in? And be like, oh no, man, I was in there for seven weeks. And then you believe yeah. them because, sure. I live on the bottom of the sea, actually. <laughs> I'm Davy Jones. <laughs> Davy Jones, you have a reputation. <laughs> so as you might have guessed... Such was the fate of Mary Furley's two-year-old son, oh, the one who no. was clutched in her arms, hit the water, drowned. After he was fished from the water, he was whisked away to the next working hospital <laughs> called yeah. the Globe Tavern. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Where with the Globe Tavern was attended by yet another surgeon called Mr. New. Which, now that I'm reading this, I'm, like, kind of um, appreciating that his name is Dr. New. It's, like, good as new. Like, mm, you yeah. could just reanimate a body and be like, yeah, it's good as new. Dr. New. Get some good as new every yeah. time. Well, we should make that our advert at the end of the episode. <laughs> um, so, Mr. New, the surgeon, um, he attended the death of the child at the Globe Tavern. And measures were taken by putting it in a warm bath to restore it to life. <sighs> I don't even know I what know. to say. He's just at the bar and he puts a dead baby on the bar and he's like, Baltenda, bring put me the a kettle on. bucket of yeah, Put the kettle on. <laughs> Give me a packet of cigarettes and a hose. I'm going to save this baby. <laughs> well, let's let uh, Surgeon New tell you it in his own words oh, using yes. his own hilarious testimony. Oh, great. Can't wait to hear this. <laughs> okay. So this is once again at Mary Furley's trial and this is the Surgeon Thomas New. I am a surgeon and live in Mile End Road. I was called on Sunday evening, the 24th of, 24th of March, to this child. It appeared to have come by its death by drowning. I have no doubt at all about that. <laughs> the usual means were resorted to restore it, but in vain. I inspected the body after it was opened. It was perfectly healthy, healthy child in every respect, and a remarkably fine child as I ever saw in my life. Every part of the viscera was perfectly healthy, and every part was firm and strong. <laughs> and then the court then asked if the child had any facial sores, as had been previously reported, to which our, our good surgeon responds, Ah, there were two or three eruptive spots about it. 
<laughs> there seemed a dislocation of the knee. That might have been for some time the child would have limped. <laughs> so it's the healthiest child he's ever seen in his life. And it is like gaping sores on its face. It's basically, it's two years old and it's had a rupture of the knee that's so severe that it's like limping and it's not even oh, able to walk yet. God. It would be like fucking Victorian doctors. Not what I would call good as new. Yeah. <laughs> good as new, you're fired. <laughs> so... That's the end of our story of the Bridge of Sighs. The Abreaved for Suicides. The bridge of Sides. And reviving people by blowing smoke up their ass. Maybe that's where that term maybe comes from. Maybe that is from. where that term comes from. I wonder if maybe the man who was living underwater for seven years, maybe that was like the, the magical cure that did the job. Maybe. It could have been a merman. You never know. <laughs> It's now time for Elliot's Absurd Story Corner. Before we get started, I'd like to make a quick note that this is our final broadcast from the European Union. Oh, that's sad. It is sad. As of this Friday, the power grid will shut down and we'll have to use a potato to power our mic for our next broadcast. What if we just converted back to like Y2K where everybody thought that calculators wouldn't be able to function because yeah. <laughs> a two and a zero in the year. It's going to be carnage. We're going to be eating each other, looting the works. Medieval times. Yeah. Uh, hearkening back to a, a better time, I would say. It's nice to know that we're regressing. Anyway, for tonight's episode, we're starting in a magical place, Casey. A place with amber waves of pudding as far as the eye can see. A place where the tea bubbles up from springs in the ground and sheep rule with an iron hoof. I'm listening. I'm talking, of course, about Yorkshire. Aww. Our English eccentric was a miserable old bastard by the name of Sir Tatton Sykes. Perhaps the biggest curmudgeon in history. He was born into a line of barons and he was heir to a fancy-ass rich household called Sledmere. This is, uh, there's not much of a count of his childhood, but apparently had a really troubled relationship with his father. Oh, I was really hoping you were going to say mother. <laughs> um, so he inherited his father's estate at the age of 37 in 1863. Um, so this guy really fucking hated plants. Right. <laughs> Can we just let that sink in for yeah. a second? Just loathed the fuck out of plants. What? Yeah. Why? Who knows? His first order of business, as soon as he inherited his estate, was to destroy all the gardens on the ground. Every single one. Oh. Mm -hmm. um, he even went as far to have all the grass dug up on the property right up to the walls of his house. This dude just loved looking out over a field of mud from his fucking window. God, he just moved to East Berlin. Seriously, can you imagine what it was like when it was rainy and cold and just mucky everywhere? Um, he particularly hated flowers, calling them nasty, untidy things. Um, I think a nasty, untidy thing is called a field of fucking mud. Yeah, for sure. That you've just <laughs> turned your beautiful, lush, green yeah, bigger, garden into. Bigger battles, bro. <laughs> So he, this is something I was kind of confused about when I was researching this guy. Um, so he lived in the estate of Sledmere, but apparently there's also a village there. And I think he just owned everything. 
because he was able to ban the growing of flowers in the village of Sledmere. And he would walk around town with his walking cane and he would chop down people's flowers if he saw them growing in their garden. What a douchebag. Uh huh. And he said, if you want to grow flowers, grow cauliflowers. And that was all he would allow people to grow would be cauliflowers. Um, he also fucking hated front doors. Okay. Just couldn't stand a front door of a house. Totally normal. We all have that rage from time to time. Um, he forced villagers in Sledmere to bolt all their front doors in all the houses. And if there were any new cottages built, he would build them with no front doors. And then they would use this technique called trompe l'oeil, some French term. Doesn't that mean full the eye? Yeah. Yeah, they do that in paintings. Yeah, yeah exactly. So they would build a, a cottage with no front door and then he would paint a fake front door on it and force them all to use the back door. <laughs> what the fuck? Mm -hmm. Um, his door hatred apparently stemmed from hating seeing women gossiping at their front door. <laughs> okay. Um, so in addition to his hatred of flowers and front doors, Sir Sykes also believed the key to a healthy body was to maintain a constant temperature. You know, that thing that the body does automatically. Yeah. <laughs> Every day, Sir Tatton Sykes would wear an insane amount of layers regardless of the weather. On average, he would wear around six coats, all tailored to fit over each other, two shirts, and two pairs of pants. Can you imagine how awful that would have smelled? Oh, God, I can only imagine. Like, he's just, he's, ba he's swimming in his own sweat all day long, but furthermore, like, the era he's living in, I'm sure that you only bathed once a month if you were excessive. Uh, yeah, exactly, and... That's probably hardly the amount he bathed. I can imagine this guy. If he's such a dick about all this other stuff, he probably doesn't like bathing either. Probably hates bathtubs. Um, so he, in order to maintain his temperature while he was walking around or traveling or doing anything, he would just shed layers throughout the day. And because he's a crazy old rich guy, he would just fucking drop his clothes where he was standing. <laughs> <laughs> and just leave them there on the ground. Just like, oh, I'm done with these pants. Boom. I'm going to take them off. I'm imagining like when you walk into your house and you know, you know that there's an affair because there's just like a parade of clothes leading up to the bedroom. Yeah. Like, but that's like <laughs> him going to fucking Tesco. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so he got a reputation for this and village children would go around collecting his clothes and they would turn them into his butler for a shilling. Fuck yeah. I'm mm -hmm. into that little kids. Keep it up. Definitely. So old Tatty Boy traveled quite a bit, but he really hated foreign cuisine. He brought his private chef everywhere with him so he could make him his favorite meal of all time. Fish and chips. Ha, you wish it was that normal. Milk pudding. Oh. He ate this at least once a day. Did he learn the recipe from the workhouse? <laughs> <laughs> um, to, from what I could gather, milk pudding is kind of like panna cotta or like rice pudding kind of stuff. And that's what he would eat all day long. Yeah, that was his all-time favorite dish. But he'd have it as like an entree, not a dessert. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He would, at the very minimum, he'd eat it once a day for lunch. I'm very confused by this man because in some ways I detest him and other days I really relate to him. Hmm, indeed. I think I like milk pudding. I think I like flowers. I know I like flowers. Um, so in 1911, Tatton's mansion catches on fire and it spreads rapidly throughout the building. 
His butler bursts in on him to save him, and he's eating his fucking milk pudding. <laughs> and because he's a bent old dickhead, he refuses to leave until he's done with his milk pudding. No rush, Teddy. No rush. Um, so while he's in there chowing down on his fucking stupid dinner in the middle of a burning building, villagers start to arrive, and they form a human chain from a pond nearby and they start passing buckets and they're trying to put out the fire and they're trying to save the building. Um, he finally leaves after he finishes his fucking dinner and asks the villagers for one favor. Can they save one of his most prized possessions? His milk pudding spoon. <laughs> no, no. It's a color of milk pudding, but it's way heavier. A one his ton. invisible ink <laughs> jar. <laughs> A one-ton marble sculpture of Apollo. <laughs> one ton. This motherfucking dickhead he sends all these people that pay rent to him and live in his cottages what? into a burning building, and he asks him, can you get my one-ton marble sculpture for me? I'm just, like, trying to do the, like, mathematic acrobatics in my head to figure out how many grown men would it take to lift one ton. A lot. Really? A lot. Yeah. Fuck me. I think like one ton would be, it'd be like moving a medium sized car. It'd be moving an elephant. Yeah. There you have it. But do you think you can move an elephant with eight men? I don't think so. More than? Yeah. I would say like 20. Yeah. I hope I this know. guy fucking dies. Um, so they fucking do it anyway. And apparently they had to get tools and break down one of the doorways just to get the fucking thing out the building finally. Oh, only... funny little front door has a front door. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, they received no compensation for their efforts. So, alongside flowers, Sir Tatton Sykes also really fucking hated gravestones. Anyone who died during in his family during his life was dumped into an unmarked grave, despite having like a family graveyard on their lovely estate. Now, Tatton died in a hotel room in 1913, and the man the hotel manager there tried, attempted to smuggle out his body in, inside a hollow sofa so he wouldn't scare the guests. But Tatton's son demanded that his father's wishes were respected, and he was rolled out <laughs> in a fucking farm cart to his grave. <laughs> so out of like the hotel's front door, the marble yeah. staircase, they just had a put this fucking corpse in a wheelbarrow and then take it down <laughs> exactly. to the countryside. I hope I would have hoped his last wishes would be like, yeah, put me in a farm cart, but you better take me out the fucking back door. Um, so also the final insult, Sir Tatton Sykes grave was not unmarked. He was the only one allowed a gravestone. Classic. What a dick. Can I just say that I'm waiting for the day when I finally find an account about one of these, eccentrics who is like a poor working class person. <laughs> yeah. Cause all the eccentrics that we look at are fucking aristocrats. And it's almost like people had to work every hour of every day just to eat and didn't have time to develop habits like wearing six coats every fucking day. Well, if you're working class, you would be just be put in asylum, I guess. Yeah, that is, that is a or really no, good no, point. Probably you'd be put in the workhouse and then the rich people put their mm -hmm. fucking family members in the asylum. Yeah, exactly. No, definitely. Too poor for eccentricity. Do you think he was buried in six quote six coats and were they all black? Mmm, I don't know. 
We'll, you know what? We should dig up his grave, blow smoke up his ass, and <laughs> see what he's got to say. <laughs> Wake up, bud! Nobody's really dead, dead. <laughs> Wake up and smell the roses. That's right. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. Support for Albion comes from Boris Johnson Spotted Dick. Dripping with suet and milk and containing more raisins than your grandma's fruitcake, Boris Johnson's Spotted Dick is Britain's favorite little pud. For 20% off, enter promo code Bojo's Little Pud at checkout. Subscribe to Albion on every major platform, and we'll see you again for episode 12. Toodle pip. Tinkity tonk. Bye.